Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to talk to you about what I'm doing to prepare for spring and my second year of beekeeping. As always, I'd like to do a couple of homestead updates. Uh, I actually spent most of last week sick with some kind of general lurgy, which is a term we used in my house growing up for any kind of random illness that wasn't really one thing or another. Um, I'm still a little congested, so I apologize if I sound uh, croaky or um, just off today. <laughs> um, I, I still don't know what was going on last week. I just sort of was dealing with joint pain and headaches and nausea and exhaustion, but I wasn't sick enough to say that it was the flu and it wasn't strictly speaking a cold either but the result was that I basically slept for an entire week <laughs> that's really what it felt like um I think my record one night was over 13 hours of just solid sleep um I think part of the problem was that I actually didn't realize I was getting sick so the week before I was exhausted all the time and I just assumed it was seasonal depression which I know I've mentioned on and off and I'll keep mentioning it and um, I guess I should say if if anyone wants to skip discussion of like how I'm getting on as someone who suffers with depression it's always going to be in these initial updates so if you want to um, not listen to those if it's upsetting or triggering or it's just not of interest to you I would just skip five minutes ahead um, of most episodes and you can get to the the, the meat of um, what I'm going to share. So anyway, the week before I got sick, I thought that the tiredness was my seasonal depression um, because like a lot of people with depression, I get tired and I just want to sleep all the time. But sleeping all the time is the exact opposite of what actually helps. It just makes me feel worse and lower. So I just push through. Um, I just, you know, made myself stay awake. I made myself keep swimming. I made myself, um, you know, be active at home and keep up on chores and try and get work and project done. And it's not uncommon for me to kind of push through as someone with chronic illness, um, you know, not just depression, but celiac disease and, um, lower back pain and, um, carpal tunnel and stuff you know I if I gave up every time something hurt I wouldn't get anything done um, and I was also raised in a very you know stiff upper lip British household where I was forced to work through pain um, and suffering and so it, it's just second nature for me to do it and that's all not always the best thing as I saw when eventually um, my body just was like, no, we can't do this anymore. And I <laughs> I couldn't keep my eyes open for more than a couple of hours at a time. And I ended up taking a week off. So I felt like the, the message from all this is that it's all well and good telling people in general, listen to your body, your body knows what it needs. But when you're used to your brain lying to you aka telling you oh you're just sad and you should hibernate through the winter and that's fine well you're not really sure what to do it's it's hard to know is this exhaustion a symptom of my depression or is this exhaustion because I'm actually getting sick and as I'm sure many of you can relate to when you're sick as a homesteader 
your bare minimum still involves putting all your woolies on and going and dealing with the chickens and the outside animals and taking care of all your critters inside and everything else that comes with you know working out of the home and so whenever I was awake I would get whatever I could out of the way and then I would just go right back to bed and my husband he did help as best as he could but he works long hours out of the house so I try not to ask too much of him unless I'm just really incapable of anything so we muddled through and by the end of the week I was eager to get back to my regular schedule um, and my husband actually had to encourage me to take a little extra time so that I didn't overdo it because that's definitely something that I do. Um, One of the good things that came out of a week of rest is that I was able to catch up on my favourite beekeeping podcast which I know I mention a lot and it's The Hive Jive with John and Ken and it actually turns out that when I was um, unable to catch up on their episodes I had ended up missing that in the new year they had started a Patreon account and for anyone who doesn't know Patreon is basically a system that allows you to make a donation to a podcast or a group every month and there's usually established tiers set up so a lot of podcasts will have like a one dollar two dollar a month lower level tier and then a mid tier of like five dollars and then maybe like 10 20 etc and you achieve extra things or you're given extra things for each tier so um you know maybe you get to see a little bit of behind the scenes at the lowest level tier maybe you get free merchandise as you go up what I liked about what John and Ken are doing over at the Hive Jive is for the five dollar tier you get a access to um, instructional videos that they're going to be doing throughout the year and for anyone who hasn't got around to listening to this podcast yet Part of why I love it is because um, John is a master beekeeper. He's been beekeeping for a number of years. And so he's the um, educational one of the podcast. He has a wealth of personal experience and knowledge that he can share. And Ken is the new beekeeper. So in 2019, it was Ken's first year beekeeping, which was also my first year beekeeping. So I've kind of traveled along with Ken as he's gone through his journey. And now they're going into year two and I'm also going into year two. So that's part of why this podcast has been such a staple for me. And of course, it's also because I really like how John and Ken play off each other. I, um, find their speaking voices very very pleasant and um, John in particular is just a font of information he has a very um, pleasing voice and it's just fun to listen to them and I feel like I always learn a lot so what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop a link on my website which is always is you can find it in my episode description and I'm going to drop a link to their Patreon for anyone who might be interested Um, it goes to their main website So you can have a look around, you can listen to the episodes, all of their episodes are free to listen to. Um, There's no adverts either, so you can just, you know, plug in and listen without any interruption. And I really recommend it. I have uh, signed up for a little donation a month and, um, you know, I would encourage you to go over there and 
see if any of the information is of use to you, if you like it. And if you do, maybe check out what's available if you decide to donate and um, see if that's something that would be of interest to you. So one other thing I want to cover before I get to the meat of today's episode, which is about spring and how second year beekeeping is different from first year beekeeping, is that for anyone who's sort of in the northern states, you know, we're still in winter um, and you might be seeing people already posting or discussing at beekeeping meetings um, colonies that have died. And um, I'm actually relatively pleased to say that of the people that I communicate with relatively frequently, there's been very few or no die-offs. And as of, um, what was it, Tuesday, all three of my colonies are alive and well. So fingers crossed it continues. But I was reading a um, Facebook group for a, I say local, it's all of Northeast Ohio um, beekeepers are welcome to join and share their experiences of this part of the state and there was someone who came on and they were asking for advice because they had discovered that their single hive so they just have the one because they're new had died and they were asking for advice and this is something that you'll see a lot and it can be invaluable to post and list everything that you discovered in a dead hive and ask for people with more experience to guide you about what maybe happened. So this person is posting and as people are asking questions, it becomes apparent, or I mean, it became apparent pretty early on that the issue, unsurprisingly, was Varroa mites. Now, this beekeeper who is new, he had assumed that everything was fine with Varroa because he had treated regularly through the year with two different kinds of treatments. He had used apivar and oxalic acid. And he had gone by guidelines that recommends using apivar in sort of spring and summer, and then the oxalic acid in the fall, which is often recommended because in the fall, you know, brood production is lowering down and they're focusing on food stores and so oxalic acid doesn't penetrate the capped cell where the varroa mites you know are hiding and reproducing so when you have a lot of open brood or very little brood it's a great time to apply oxalic acid because any mites that are there are going to be on the bees or in open cells and the oxalic acid will get them and kill them. So he had done what he thought he was supposed to do and he didn't understand why it was clearly apparent that the mite population had exploded and it had destroyed his colony. So people are asking questions and it soon becomes apparent that he didn't do any mite load tests. He never knew what he was dealing with. And he actually had the equipment ready to do a a Varroa mite check and he never got around to it. Now why? Why didn't he do it? Well, The reason he never did it is because in the whole year that he had this colony, he really struggled to find his queen. And if you're going to do a mite check, you have to identify your queen and move her somewhere safe so that you don't inadvertently add her to the bees that you are using and that get killed during the alcohol wash. 
because obviously, God, that would be terrible if you went ahead and you accidentally killed your queen. So because he never found her, he never did mic checks. So he never knew what he was looking at. He just treated. And I am a very, very against, and if you've listened to my Varroa mite episode, you know this already, I'm very against treating without knowing your levels because to me, it's like just taking antibiotics before you know that you have a bacterial infection. Why? Why are you subjecting your body to that? There are downsides to antibiotics and there are downsides to the treatments that we use on our bees. And I'm also against it because if you look through the literature, historically, we have gone through miticides that no longer work because people were just using them without knowing what they were dealing with. And as a result, mites that, um, let's say you have low level of mites and you're doing this um, treatment and those mites are surviving and the mites are reproducing a lot faster than your bees are. And as a result, evolutionary on an evolutionary um, adaption scale, to think of it that way, I apologize if my terminology isn't correct. They can evolve faster resistance to what we're using than our bees are evolving resistance to the mites. And so there are now whole treatments that we can't use because of this just throw everything at it and hope for the best approach. And also for the whole, you know, other people who don't treat at all and are just letting their mites ruin everything and kill everything and then exploding out into the community. But anyway, so he's just doing this treatment because that's what he's read. And I can't blame him for that because there's actually a um, there's a, a big uh, seller and beekeeper and a number of them actually in, in my area who recommend just doing treatment schedules. They don't recommend testing. They just say this time of year is when you use this treatment and this time of year is when you use that treatment. And it's hard to argue with them because from their point of view, they have 20 plus years of experience. And if they're having a certain survival rate, then to them, that's proof that what they're doing is working. And it's difficult because A, I don't have that experience. Like I'm not going to win on most knowledgeable, most hands-on, most experienced beekeeper ever. (laughs) Um, I'm always going to be behind someone who has a lot more experience than me and and experience shouldn't be overlooked in something like this like we do need to listen to those who've come before us but conversely there's been a huge amount of studies like actual peer-reviewed scientific studies on this process of treating and how it can be leading and is leading to resistance in in Varroa to miticides so if you've done if if your attitude is I've always done this for 20 years and it's worked and I'm not going to stop now and you're not reading the literature it's hard for me to just be like well how dare you Um, and it's hard for new beekeepers to have access to everything to have access to all the literature to know what to do because we tell people look to the more experienced go to your clubs Uh, find teachers in your community and if your teachers are saying oh you're fine you don't need to do the mic counts go ahead and treat anyway then of course you're going to do that but kind of getting back to my point um I know I talked about in my first year I struggled to find the queen and particularly when 
my hive raised their own queen and she was young before she fully fattened out. She was fast as greased lightning and that hive had a huge population and trying to find her in there was such a struggle. And as a result, I had to push some of my mite tests back a little further than I wanted to do and it made me nervous. But these kind of steps in your first year, these things that you need to do, um, learning how to identify the queen, struggling through that, learning how to do a proper hive inspection, which doesn't always have to find the queen, but should be something that you can do when needed. These are steps that you can't skip, in my opinion. And I felt bad that he he didn't have the resources or he hadn't found the resources to help him with that. So I, I feel quite fortunate because I have very good teachers and I, I just stumbled across them. They I'm just lucky that they happen to be local to me. And one of the classes that they've offered is is how to find the queen and it gives you tips on what to look for, how to do your inspection, um, to increase your chances of, of finding her. And they also recommend things like, you know, when you're stressed, when it feels like nothing is working, just take a break. It's okay. As much as we stress that scheduling is important with our bees, if things aren't working, it's okay to close things up and come back the next day. You know, it's better for you. It's better for your bees if you're not working when you're stressed out. So for those of you who are struggling to find the queen, I'm going to post some resources on my blog, um, which has recommendations. And one of them is um, there's someone on Instagram and she recently actually published a book on how to find the queen and it's an absolutely beautiful book I really recommend it the book is called queen spotting and it's by the uh, woman behind uh, girl next door honey who is an experienced beekeeper and her Instagram and her website are really excellent and I do recommend you follow along uh, she's actually very inspiring to me um, not just because she is um, so successful as a woman in beekeeping, but because her journey from getting involved in bees to where she is now, where she's an educator, she's sharing her knowledge, she's um, publishing these incredible books and um, her photography is wonderful. Just, I love her. So check out Girl Next Door Honey. I will um, link to her various accounts and I will link to the book on my blog so you can check it out. I do recommend it. And she also has an email list that you can sign up for where she sends you, I think it's once a month, a photo of a frame with a queen on it and you have to try and spot the queen. And it's really good practice and it, it definitely helps. So I'm going to post those on the blog. Do recommend you checking them out, if only because the book is stunning, but it also is practical and it will help you if you are struggling. Okay, so enough of me blathering on at you as I like to do. Let's blather on about the topic today. So um, when I was listening and catching up to The Hive Jive, Episode 41, which I think was the second to last, is entitled Initial Checklist for Your Second Year. And when I was listening to it, I realised that in my excitement of 
the sunshine coming back and the warm weather and getting back into hands-on beekeeping, I had overlooked a couple of things. And really what made me realize this was that John had mentioned that when you're going into your second year, you need to sort of decide what your priority is. Is it bees or is it honey? And depending on whether you're looking to expand your colonies or maximize your honey harvest, the way you manage your colonies in early spring is going to be a little bit different. So I know I have said historically that I got into this for the bees and that's still true. I am still ridiculously in love with these incredible insects and I love working with them. And I'm planning, and I have been planning for a while, of splitting my two strongest hives, assuming that they come through winter in good enough shape that I can do so. And if I do split these hives, and I have this package with the Saskatraz hybrid queen coming, I should end up with six hives based on the assumption that all three of my current hives survive, which please, oh please, we're doing so well. I just desperately want them to get through. Now, this leads me to a little bit of a conundrum because I definitely want to expand. Um, I do want to get up to six hives, but I also would really like to have a honey harvest and it doesn't have to be a big harvest, but it would be something. And the reason this leads me to a little bit of a conundrum is because if I split those two hives, the positive would be that I am hopefully decreasing the chances of them swarming because they are going to be busy expanding, building new comb and preparing for the nectar flow. But I'm also decreasing the amount of honey that they can bring in because I'm making them spend time and resources on comb building and brood expansion when they could be just focused on the brood expansion and then as soon as that nectar flow comes in they have the peak population needed for peak nectar harvesting and so perhaps I can swing it so perhaps I can have both if I am okay with a smaller honey harvest which I am but I do really really want honey and the reason why is because it is delicious and I bomb through the stuff. I buy, you know, jars from my local keepers and I'm going through a fair amount because I drink a huge amount of tea as I am in fact a British stereotype and I love honey in my tea, particularly honey from my local keepers because that stuff is magic. But I also want honey this year because my in-laws surprised me with an incredible gift for Christmas. And that is an electric honey extractor. Um, it's from Vivo, V-E-V-O. I will um, see if I can find a link to it on the company website. I am so, I haven't even used it yet, but I'm so in love with it. It's so shiny. I a little bit of it was damaged during shipping because it was actually left on the UPS truck for like a week. They kept on pushing back delivery and it got banged around and customer service has been incredible. They're sending me out a replacement part and they've just been really wonderful and so fast um, to respond to my emails. And I, I'm, I'm already a fan. So fingers crossed it works as well as I hope it does. So this is making me think about this spring because 
I can't believe it took me this long to realize uh, this is just typical me. Your second year of beekeeping is going to be different from your first year. I mean, unless you end up losing all your colonies and are basically starting from scratch, it, it's very different to work with survival colonies that have um, resources available to them that it is when you're basically working with your packages and your nukes and it's all about getting them to build those resources early on and getting them established. So when I was thinking about spring and I was thinking about what I would need to do, one of the first things that occurred to me is that I needed to look at what kind of equipment I have and what I'm going to need. So the first thing I did is I, I went back to my hives and I assessed what they have. So hive number one is one deep box and one medium box with an empty deep on top that I'm currently using as a quilt box, but I also use as kind of a protector for a feeder in the spring. Hive number two is exactly the same. And then hive number three is two deeps with that empty deep on top for a quilt box or a feeder. So all of that is in use and will remain in use. So then I looked at what I have in storage and what I currently have in storage, um, I have two honey supers with frames, which are new and I just need to decorate, but are otherwise ready to go. I have one honey super with frames that's completely ready to go. I have a deep with frames that's ready to go. I have a solid bottom board that's brand new and that needs to be painted and weatherproofed. I have a screen bottom board that's ready to go. I have a new inner cover, a new outer cover. Both of those are ready to go. I have pollen substitute on hand and I have sugar for making sugar syrup, but I'm probably going to need a lot more sugar. In terms of equipment that I need to purchase before the spring, I'm going to need an additional bottom board. And really what I'm looking for, my preferred bottom board is it's a screen with a removable uh, tray. Um, that is great for like checking for uh, varroa mites that fall through and then it's nice because you can pull the tray out to give more ventilation in the summer and then put it back in to um, provide more insulation in the winter. I need two additional inner covers, two outer covers. I'm looking at at least four to five deep boxes. Uh, I need more feeders if I'm going to be expanding my hives and those can be things like mason jars or the larger top feeders that I've used uh, I think the one I have is called like an Apis one. I'm going to need a lot of sugar syrup because I'm going to be feeding. Um, and then I noticed while doing my reading that there's some small things that I might need, such as a small spray bottle, which would be used for spritzing package bees or swarms with a, a sugar syrup. I'm going to need a bee brush, uh, an extra hive tool. I need my nitrile gloves because I ran out. Um, I need a half cup measure for mite tests and I'm eventually going to need mite treatment. And there's probably other stuff that as I start again in the spring, I'm going to be scrambling to purchase. But this is what I think I should start getting now in preparation. I've also been considering whether I want to do a top bar hive and I listed it into pros and cons. So the pros would be it's a new toy. Um, which would be very, very fun. And I would be learning all new skills, which I do love to do. If everything goes well with the hive, I could potentially harvest cut comb honey, 
which I'm very excited about. I love natural comb and also because I have a friend who was just telling me that he misses eating cut comb honey from his youth and I would love to surprise him with some. It's considered a quote-unquote natural form of beekeeping because the bees are building all their own comb. They can size the cells as they need to. It's meant to mimic more of a natural kind of fallen tree environment and I'm kind of curious about how the colony is going to respond in that kind of hive compared to the Langstroths. And a big win for me about top bar hives is that they are easier to manage if you have a bad back because you're not lifting heavy boxes, you are just setting it at a height that works for you and working with it on that level. So what are the cons? Well, I'd be learning new skills. (laughs) And yes, that's very fun, but I'm also going to be doing other new things with my current hives like hopefully harvesting honey um, assisting with the build-up learning when to put the queen excluder on working with hopefully larger colonies so potentially I could get overwhelmed I've also read that top bar hives are harder to overwinter successfully they are more delicate because the comb is natural so when you're doing inspections You need to be careful that you don't jostle the comb in case it falls down and um, releases from the top bar. I don't have any comb on hand that I can put in there to encourage a package or a swarm to stay, which I'm really worried about. I'd be very worried about investing in this hive, putting bees in there, and then they don't want to stay put. Um, And also, I would need all new equipment including learning what kind of feeders work best for this completely different shaped hive. So I haven't fully decided and I suppose one benefit on having a longer winter is that I can take some time, I can do my reading, I can look at what equipment is available to either build or for sale and I can decide, you know, am I going to do this top bar thing or not? And I will, of course, let you know. So going back to second year beekeeping and what spring looks like, I have obviously no basis of reference. I have not done that yet. So I went back to my books and it seems like the general message is going into your second year, you really need to stay one step ahead of your bees. Which I'm sure is easier said than done. (laughs) But um, what exactly does that mean? So assuming that your colonies make it through winter and they're strong and they're healthy, everything I've read indicates that the spring buildup can happen shockingly fast if weather is conducive. And this basically means that you really want to make sure that early on you're providing that colony adequate space to build. So In the Backyard Beekeeper, which is by Kim Flottam, who I mention a lot in part because he's local and he's very well respected and also the book is just wonderful. He recommends that you want to make sure that all your colonies have a minimum of two deep boxes in early spring. And I can't believe that I didn't realize this already because in hindsight this is where I went wrong last year. I 
started my nukes in one deep box and I didn't add the second box until there was already some signs that they were honey bound. And so I feel like their buildup was kind of spotty and their comb building was not as productive as I would have hoped for. So now I know, right? Now I know um, that it's recommended to start with the two deep or two brood boxes off the bat. Now, Kim Flottam in his book um, has a good rundown of what you're looking for in early spring inspections. And early spring inspections, by this, it's kind of meant whenever the weather is warm enough that you can actually go into the hive, even if it's not for a long period of time, because again, you really want the weather to be nice. I'd recommend over 55 degrees Fahrenheit. You don't want to chill the brood. But if you have that opportunity to go in there, there's a lot that you can learn in early spring. So let's say the weather is warm, your bees are active, and you're confident that you can go in and have a real quick look. What are you looking for? What you're looking for, first and foremost, is their food supplies. Do they have any honey left from the winter? If you put fondant in there, have they eaten all the fondant or is there still quite a lot left? You want to get a good feel for what food resources they have right now. Depending on the weather, it also might be a good time to check for Varroa. If the colony is already showing signs of a population increase and build up, you're going to be at more risk of Varroa this second year because you have a lot more bees. And so you might want to do a check. And if you do a check, a treatment that's often recommended is the oxalic acid, which, as I mentioned earlier, is because when you have minimal brood, it's most effective because it cannot penetrate cat cells and get to the mites underneath. So any mites are exposed. Let's say that everything's going well, the weather is consistently warm. You can go ahead and you can remove the boxes from the bottom board, place them securely somewhere like on your hive stand and clean the bottom board and screen. Um, there's going to be a fair amount of debris and bee poop and all kinds of things, dead bees that you can get rid of there. When there's consistent daily flight activity at your hive entrance, you can go ahead and you can remove your mouse guard. You can also remove your um, bee cozy or bee wrap. Go ahead, take the quilt board off, take the candy board and the shim off. And then you're gonna put the inner cover flat side down. If your bottom box is empty of bees, you can do a box reversal where you move the empty box and put the upper box, which had the bees, down and then the empty box on top. And then add an additional deep box with drawn comb if possible. I realise the reversal is a little confusing and I don't know if the way I just phrased it made it worse, but I'm going to have pictures on my, uh, my blog so you can see exactly what's meant by that and it gives a good guide. One thing I thought was interesting that um, Kim Flotter mentions is that if there's a box of honey left, it would be on the top of your hive, right? But what you want to do in the spring is you want to put it on the bottom. And the reason why is that bees expand upwards. And if they go to, they're trying to expand their brood nest up and they're hit, they're stuck by the honey storage. This can cause problems and it can trigger swarming behavior. So you take the box of honey, you put it down on the bottom board, put your box of bees to be the middle box, and then on top of them, put an empty box 
ideally withdrawn comb if you have any so that they can expand and there's actually a quote that um, stood out to me from the uh, honeybee biology and beekeeping book and um, the authors there say the key to inspecting a colony is to have fun doing the work and to learn something about the bees that will help make the next management decision easier and I love that that's a great quote and that's what I would always hope I can do during an inspection I'm having fun I'm learning something the bees are teaching me something they're saying you know we're not building up well or we need more space and the whole purpose of that is that then we make our management decision based on what we learned right so this same book honeybee biology and beekeeping divides spring into three arbitrary periods early spring mid spring and late spring and I'm going to follow that guideline here as it helps me visualize how the season might progress for me and also because it makes kind of condensing this information uh, a little clearer or at least I I really hope that's what it's doing you can let me know so in early spring what are we doing what are we looking for so according to what I've read, we are checking the remaining food stores. And this is important because you want to make sure they have enough to get to the nectar flow because the nectar flow is dependent on the weather. And one thing that can sometimes happen is that bees can run out of food and actually perish before the nectar flow happens, even though the weather's um, warm enough that they've broken their winter cluster. So we're checking the remaining food stores. During early spring, as the daylight hours increase, the brood will increase. And this means that the colony is going to need pollen, which is their protein. And protein is what they feed to their baby bees. So it's very important as this brood expansion occurs. If you sadly have any dead colonies, now is the time to inspect them and try and figure out what caused them to die. Um, in particular, you want to look for signs of disease, especially American fowl brood, which is no joke and a freaking disaster if you get it. So do your best and don't be afraid to ask for help from local keepers, a teacher, your bee club, jump online, whatever you need to do to try and assess what happened. If you did not find disease and your hive perished because of starvation, or some kind of chill or water getting into the hive, then any kind of wax and comb, once you've removed any of the perished bees, that can be reused. So during this early spring, if the weather is good, the um, expansion of the population can be very, very fast. And as a result, because they're trying to build their population, small colonies that are not as strong can run through their food very, very quickly and actually starve to death. So it wouldn't hurt to start feeding. Um, if the weather's warm enough for you to feed sugar syrup, it's a one-one sugar syrup. Once you start feeding it, don't let it run out. Um, there could be periods of time where this is their primary source of nectar and you want to make sure they always have access to it. As I mentioned before, you can reverse the hive bodies to expand the brood area. So you're taking, if there's an empty box on the bottom, you're moving it up. So bees are now on the bottom and they have empty space above them to expand. 
the only rule for this really is that if your brood is sped, spread, excuse me, between two boxes, do not reverse. You don't want to separate your brood. Now, potentially your brood could be spread between two boxes because they are um, stuck, if you were, by honey storage. And as I mentioned above, honey storage um, can prevent expansion. So see where your honey stores are, if there are any, and if it's stopping your bees from moving upwards. You want to check your hives regularly. Um, my rule, because this is what my teachers taught me and I did find it effective, is every seven to 10 days. And it seems that this is particularly important in the spring when things can happen very quickly. You want to be in there often enough that you can assess and react with speed to any potential issues. Something to keep in mind as your bees are expanding is that bees will generally always build comb in the center frames. So to encourage good wax production and comb buildup, you can switch outer frames with the inner frames to get an even build. And this is something that I really wish I had done earlier last year because otherwise you can get something which is termed chimneying, which is when the bees just sort of grow um, upwards. They make comb on all the center frames moving up through the boxes and all those outer frames in multiple boxes they just don't build on. And I had some of that last year and it was a pain in the butt. So um, if you have built up comb in the center frames, you can move those to the outer frames. The rule again is never separate brood and also don't separate brood from pollen which they need to be fed. Everything that I've read is basically saying, let the colony's progress guide you, which, okay, that's fine. But when you're new, it can be difficult sometimes to read all the signs. So just be in your hives enough to see what's going on and read everything you can. Talk to people, um, let other people guide you and see what their colonies are doing. Something to consider as well in early spring is that younger queens tend to be more prolific and we'll get back to egg laying faster and so if you have a slow expansion and you know that your queen is a couple of years old then you might want to think about requeening that colony. From early spring we move to mid-spring and this seems to be the most critical time in the colony's growth. This can be the time that colonies without enough food stores who are not being fed by you can actually perish um, in part because beekeepers might think that with the better weather, the danger is over and they don't realise that the nectar flow hasn't built up enough or hasn't started and their bees starve to death. So keep an eye on their food stores and don't be afraid to feed heavily. By mid-spring, your brood nest should have doubled in size. And to give you an idea of what that looks like, because I also was wondering, okay, how exactly do I read this? Um, multiple books said basically the same thing, which is that for every cell with eggs, there should be twice as many cells with larva and four times as many with capped brood. 
So for every cell with eggs, there should be twice as many larvae and four times as many cats brood. So that gives you kind of an idea. The adult population should be enough to cover all brood frames. There should be a minimum of two to three frames of honey. You should have pollen stores within and on the edges of the brood area. There should be active bee flight regularly, I mean with weather permitting. There's no disease or if you did spot disease, you already have treatment in progress. And this is when you will start looking for queen cups. And the reason why is that mid-spring is when swarming is most likely to happen. And queen cups are some of your earliest indicators that swarming is being considered. So, of course, my first thought was, well, what is it about mid-spring that makes swarming more likely? Well, swarming is motivated by a perceived lack of space, a lot of brood, including drones, a large population of adult bees, also including drones, an aging or older queen, because this often means diminished or spotty queen pheromones, a strong nectar flow and cooperative weather. And this is when mid-spring, this is kind of what you're looking at right now. So colonies that are most likely to swarm have three primary parts to them. They have come through winter strong and healthy. They have good food stores and population. And they have a one year or older queen. So knowing this, what signs should we be looking for? Well, the first thing, like I said, is queen cups. Because queen cups will happen before the egg laying from the queen slows or even stops. You'll also notice little or no open brood and the activity in the brood nest overall is going to decrease. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it's always worth repeating. You don't have to panic if you see queen cups, even in mid-spring, because queen cups are a normal process in a colony. Um, I guess it's like them saying, well, look, we have a backup just in case something happens to our matriarch. But they are important to keep an eye on because if there are queen cups and a queen doesn't have anywhere else to lay and she lays an egg in there and the bees decide they're going to pull out that cell. Sorry, by pull out, I mean they're going to feed that egg. They're going to make a proper queen cell that's when you might have issues so if you go in and you see a capped queen cell you've probably already missed your chance to prevent swarming if you find queen cells that have not yet been capped you should still have a chance but everything that I've read and the minimal experience I've had and then talking to other people is that nothing is guaranteed with bees <laughs> So keep in mind that you could do everything right to try and mitigate swarming and your bees might still be basically saying, no, F you, we're off. So keep that in mind. But what can we do to prevent swarming? There's a couple of things. As I mentioned before, you want to have lots of space for that egg laying in the brood nest. So you're going to start the spring with two deep boxes. 
you want to make sure there's also enough space for nectar storage. So have your honey supers ready to go. Um, you want to have your hive set up somewhere where they're getting maximum sunlight and sufficient ventilation. And this is important because it's basically making sure that your current hive is as ideal a home environment as it can be. And it's not adding to the stress of the bees and making them more likely to consider finding somewhere better. And then again, younger queens. Young queens are a lot less likely to swarm. And a, I actually read that a queen who is going through her first spring buildup, she is very, it's very unlikely that she will decide to swarm compared to a second year queen or a third year queen and so on. So that's what you can think about in terms of swarm prevention. But what about swarm control, where you've seen signs that the colony has already started to make that decision? Their colony is acting as if they are going to swarm. So assuming that you haven't completely missed the window, some things that you can do are you can either remove the queen or cage her for seven to ten days to create a brood break. And um, this is basically going to put a stop to the swarm. And it's actually a good form of varroa mite control, which I mentioned in my episode on varroa mites, because um, when you have a brood break, that doesn't allow any capped brood cells where the varroa mite does their gross inbreeding reproduction. Something else you can do is you can basically remove brood and this can be done in a couple of different ways. You can take frames of brood out and give those frames to weaker colonies that could use a boost. You can make splits. So you're splitting your hive in two and either allowing the queenless half to raise their own queen or requeening. Or you can make nucleus colonies and either purchase queens for them or let them raise a queen. You can also do something which is completely new to me where you separate the brood and the queen in the same hive and this is called the Damari method named after the beekeeper who first suggested it um, back in the 1800s I believe and it basically involves rearranging the colony so that you put your queen on the in the bottom box with just a few frames of sealed brood put a queen excluder on top of that box then honey supers then the remaining brood in the top box and this basically means you've just separated the queen from the majority of the brood and the brood on the top it's kind of interesting because that's where you're going to be putting any queen cells that you found or you might find that any eggs up there the bees will start um maybe pulling queen cells and at that point you can then decide whether to let that top box raise a new queen which you could then move into like you know a split or um, a nucleus colony or you can just go through and you can get rid of any queen cells that you see. So why do we want to stop swarming? Why, why is swarming a concern? Well I found a quote that really just sums it up beautifully and it's from the um, honeybee biology book and it is this although a natural behavior 
Swarming is a challenge to beekeepers because swarming divides the population of a colony before the target nectar flow is reached. And that really sums it up. If your hive swarms, you have half your population, the remaining bees have half their resources, and now there's more buildup that needs to be done, hopefully in time for the peak nectar flow, which is when they are going to be making honey for you. So if you're interested in honey and maximizing your honey harvest, either for yourself or for your bees going into winter, allowing your hives to swarm is not going to help you with that. And this is much like what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about making splits. If I'm going to split my colonies, I need to do it as early as possible and assist them in their buildup because I want them to be at peak strength when that nectar flow comes in. So let's say that you did everything right and your bees just went, ha ha, we do what we want and flew away and swarmed. Or you missed the window, there was nothing you could do and they swarmed. What can you do? Well, you might be lucky in that they swarm and actually don't go off your property, which means that you have the option of catching them. Or maybe you want to catch swarms in your area in general. So you decide that this would be a great way of getting quote unquote free bees. And there is a lot of information available about how to best catch swarms and I'm not going to run through everything here because it would make this episode even longer than it already is and I don't have any experience with it Um, so I do recommend reading up on it and um, even better if you know someone who regularly catches swarms maybe asking them if they would be willing to take you along on a swarm or if you find a swarm, giving them a call and saying, hey, would you come and catch this and show me how it's done, please? I would love to learn from you. But the basic gist of catching swarms is the use of some kind of container to move them. And it's important that it have adequate ventilation if you are traveling. So maybe putting a screened lid on a, on a nucleus colony. You, It would be beneficial if you have a spray bottle filled with sugar syrup. Uh, spritzing a swarm is supposed to help reduce the defensiveness of the bees because they'll be licking themselves and if it's what's called a dry swarm which basically means that they've already used up the honey they took with them you're feeding them and the feeding them can also reduce aggressiveness because like us bees get hangry and so if you're feeding them they have nice full tummies and they're going to be a bit calmer And then you'll probably also want to have on hand some kind of cutting tool as swarms often land on branches and sometimes you're going to need to clip away the branch that they're on or branches nearby to access that swarm. Uh, On a side note, Kim Flotton's book, um, The Backyard Beekeeper, has a section that describes how to use a piece of cardboard to gently and effectively remove a swarm from a vertical surface, which I'd never thought about I thought it was really interesting and it's very useful information and so if you can pick up that book most libraries have it it's definitely worth a read so that's mid-spring okay so mid-spring we've we've been on swarm watch and now we're moving into late spring and late spring is all about that peak nectar flow and It's about being prepared. So it's pre-flow management. 
aka preparing for honey. And again, we need to stay one step ahead by providing ample space. And this is something that I've mentioned I struggled with last year. I didn't see the signs that they needed more space. And so we had some backfilling. So basically, as a little baby bee came out of the cell, the bees would then fill that cell with honey. And if this goes on long enough, it's called being honey bound and it's a problem. So what are we looking for? And I went through my books and this seems to be the general agreed thing to look for. So you, let's say you have your two deep boxes and they're filled with your brood. Your brood nest has expanded. You have those two deep boxes with that lovely big ball of uh, brood. And then around them you have pollen and then you have honey on the edges. And you've put a third box on top for them to let them expand. When that third box has three to four frames of built up comb, two to three of those frames have brood on it and there's pollen and honey on the edges of the brood, this would be the perfect time to put your first honey super on there. And if you're using a queen excluder, that would go above the third box and then the honey super on top. And if you have any frames that have already been built upon to go in that first honey super that would be amazing because it's going to encourage your bees to go up there and start packing in the honey. Now you want to have as many honey supers on hand as you can because the flow can be very fast and it can happen very quickly within a week or two so have those boxes ready have your frames built have everything in there so you can just run out pop it on your hives and you're good to go when your first honey super has honey in four to five of the frames go ahead put that second super on there and kim flotton had an interesting little tidbit to share about why it's so important to always have adequate space for them he says if foragers return to the hive with nectar and the house bees have nowhere to put it, they will tell those foragers to quit foraging, which is really, really neat, but obviously not what we want. So you're really just in this mode now where you're going out there, you're looking to see how quickly they're filling up their honey super and you're adding more as needed. And for more information on preparing for the nectar flow, you can listen to my episode on all things honey, which is episode number seven, where the first half of that episode is just about managing the nectar flow, what to do with your hives, what you're looking for, all that kind of good stuff. So that's really it. <laughs> and there's a lot to think about. And what blew my mind was, did I not know this my first year or just during everything else that I was trying to remember and trying to focus on, did this just kind of go on the back burner and I just made the mistakes that I did and I didn't think ahead? You know, I people ask me, what's involved in keeping bees? What do you do? Like, are you out there every day or when you're out there on your inspections, what's involved? And I like to talk about it like learning to drive or kind of a little closer to my heart, learning a new swimming stroke. When you start, there's so much that you have to consider. Um, 
when I first learned to drive, I learned to drive in England where um, stick shift manual is the norm and automatic cars are more unusual, whereas it seems to be the opposite here in the US where most people drive automatic and only a handful or a less a smaller number drive stick. So when I learned to drive stick, for anyone out there who also drives stick, you know that there's so much to think about. You know, when do you press the the gear shift, the shift pedal, moving um, through the gearbox? Uh, you you're using both feet instead of one. So one's you know on the accelerator, and then you have your brake, and then you have the um, shift pedal, and you're also thinking about checking your mirrors and assessing where you are in the road and looking for pedestrians and keeping an eye out on other cars and it just seems this impossible task to hold all these things in your brain while also moving a you know metal potential death trap down the road at speed and it can be very overwhelming and it's it takes a while until you get that muscle memory of when to press the pedal and and the ease of going through the gears and all that kind of stuff before driving becomes second nature and if any of that description sounded extremely clumsy you'll have to forgive me because I haven't driven stick in donkey's years and honestly if you put me in a manual car now I would be lost because since I moved to the US I've only driven automatic so I apologize if I just made no sense then but hopefully even those of you who learned on automatic, there's still so much that you're trying to think about and remember when you're behind the wheel. And it's the same when you're learning a new stroke in swimming. You're, you don't have the muscle memory, you're doing a new movement and potentially new breathing patterns and you're moving through water and you need to time everything perfectly because you don't want to inhale when your face is down and everything like that. And that's what beekeeping is like or... Uh, that's how it feels to me that when you're new you are trying to hold I don't know 20 different things that need to be done or need to be looked for in your head at the same time and until it becomes routine until you get some muscle memory until it becomes second nature you're going to make mistakes you're not going to see things you're not going to remember things Um, it's a journey we're always learning that's something that I love about working with animals and in this case insects is that they're not truly predictable they're always going to have something to teach you and you're always going to experience something new and um, I'm very excited to go into my second year and and see what this is like and address new challenges and hopefully expand and get some honey that would be great. So I really feel that um, the authors of Honey Bee Biology and beekeeping summed up kind of what's involved in colony management in a very um, pithy way. And what they say is, successful colony management is a complex application of art and science that begins with understanding bee biology and skillful use of information to meet beekeeper objectives timing is everything so no pressure I'm sure all of you listening who are going into your second year can navigate a complex application of art and science I'm sure you're going to do fine (laughs) so if you're like me uh yes this is a great time 
do your reading um look to your mentor if you have one go to your beekeeping clubs and I realize that I'm kind of a hypocrite because I don't go to my clubs um a lot of it's just timing for me it's at times a day that I can't do but also as some of you might have realized by now I'm kind of a hermit and I don't really like I don't really like big social groups um and I actually have really enjoyed beekeeping for me is primarily primarily a solitary endeavor but with this network of wonderful sharing people who are willing and able to speak with me as needed and who I can send an email to, I can call, I can go to classes, I can go to a club. The clubs, even if you're not a member, they welcome you dropping by. There might be a small door fee of a couple of dollars, but they are open and welcoming. And generally speaking, your community of beekeepers, they want to help you. And so I love that I can be my little hermit self and work with my bees 90% of the time. And then that 10%, I have this incredibly diverse, wonderfully informative community available to me, both in person and online. And all of you listening, you're part of that community. And as always, I want to thank you so much for listening and being involved. And I hope that if those of you who are going into your second year, I hope that you will share with me what you're going through. You can leave me comments, you can make your own Instagram or Facebook and like drop the link for me and I will follow along with you. And I would be happy to talk with you anytime. And, um, you know, get to know me, let's get to know each other, it would be fun. <laughs> and um, as always, if you have a second, you can leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or however it works. Um, wherever you listen to, if there's a review method, that would be great. Um, and you can reach me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. I'm homesteadhensandhoney on Instagram, homesteadhens on Twitter and Tumblr and Homestead Hens and Honey on Facebook. As I mentioned previously, I will have a link to my website that has my blog and all social media connections and links and a commenting function um, in the episode description. So you can also find me there. And I need to start thinking about what my next episode will be, which will be released in two weeks. And unless something different catches my eye, right now I'm leaning towards gardening plans because I haven't even thought about it yet and there's a lot to be done. And also I need to be a little bit more realistic about what I can achieve in the time that I have, particularly with me wanting to expand my beehives and spend more time on that endeavour. So watch this space. Please do follow me on Instagram. Um, that's kind of where I post most of my stuff and I'm trying to be better about posting there and kind of building up a little bit more uh, information that's available there. 
And for those of you who don't know, I also have a personal Instagram, which is Britty Kitty, B-R-I-T-I. K-I-T-T-Y which is where I post all my dog stuff and a bit more of my reptile stuff and just kind of more personal information but you're welcome to follow me there and I'm actually for the next 10 days starting this evening I'm pet sitting my friend's three dogs so I'm going to have six dogs one of which is an Italian greyhound puppy starting this evening so if you want to see well, assuming that I'm not weeping in a corner from all the cleaning that's going to be involved in having six dogs in this house and managing a hyperactive puppy, I'm going to be posting a ton of very, very cute pictures over on my personal Instagram of um, all these puppies. So consider following me along there. And now that I've covered all of this and my throat is a little sore, (laughs) I have to go and check on my hens and um, give them hugs whether they want it or not. So as always, remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.